Thursday was a rough day for me. Uh, it started off pretty well. I, I normally roll out of bed about 4.15 in the morning or so, and, uh, but I go to bed at like 8, so it's not that bad, actually. And uh, I got up, I, I went to uh, the gym, I was there for a while, uh, headed out to uh, Sam's Club, got $3.63 gasoline, thought I was doing great. Until I remember like two years ago, gas was like 2.18 at Sam's, so kind of was like brought things back to earth a little bit. Uh, went home, uh, Kathy was already gone, so I, I did my quiet time, took a shower. Uh, once a month I, I meet with Larry Colbert, who's the founding pastor of the chapel that's over on Eisenhower Boulevard. I've been uh, coaching him through the church plant over there, and it's been a, a whole lot of fun. And so that was all great. Uh, and then it happened. I, I'm traveling from City Line Diner. I'm making my way uh, here to the church office. And during that time, I normally call my son John just to check in on him. Uh, he was uh, on Thursday. Uh, they were waiting for the, their first son to be born. I wanted to find out how things were going. And uh, so I dialed John's number. And instead of hearing like, hey, dad, uh, I got this. This device has been blocked from network access. I'm like, what's up with that? And I'm like, I, I surely, you know, I, I must have just hit like the wrong cell tower or something like that. So I did what we all do. You know, I dialed the numbers again, pressed the button, waiting to hear John. I hear this number has been blocked or device has been blocked from network access. So now I'm like, what in the world have I done? Now, we're on a family plan with my parents, so Kathy and I, we uh, send money to my parents every month to pay for our portion of the cell phone bill. Here I am, I'm 58 years old, I'm still living off my parents, all right? And actually, I'm 57, I'll be 58 soon, but and I'm thinking to myself, you know, did they not pay the bill? You know, I, I know they moved into the retirement center, I know they've been doing the bingo thing, I thought maybe my mom got a little overextended on the bingo account. And so, like, you know, who knows? And, and then I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's more nefarious than that, you know? Is the, is the NSA, like, spying on me right now because I make these calls to Ecuador to check on my son, Mike? You know, is some, you know, some guy in the dark state or whatever it is, like, shut off my phone? And, and then I really started to get worried. I'm like, if that happened, they probably have locked up my bank accounts. That's not good. And then I'm thinking, I'm probably going to come up here to church. There's going to be a black SUV, tinted windows, government license plates. You know, the door's going to slide open. They drag me in, and off I go. And so now all these conspiracy theories are, like, flooding through my head. Like, you know, did the CIA assassinate JFK? Did we really land on the moon? Was Mr. Rogers really a Navy SEAL in Vietnam? So I, I get in my office, I, I you know, take a minute or two, check to make sure there's no like, cameras or bugs, and then I think, well, I better call AT&T to figure out what's happening. Now, we all know the trepidation that comes with calling a cell phone customer support. You know you're going to be on that line for a long period of time, and so... I get on there, I call, you know, it's like, state your problem, I state my problem, the computer can't understand my problem. I'm like, customer service, customer service. Finally, you know, the computer gives me the customer service. And 
uh, very kind people on the phone. I'm being super nice to them because, you know, I, I, I'm a pastor, and I know the caller ID says Living Water Community Church, so that's not going to be good if I mess up. And uh, so after about 15 minutes of being put on hold, being brought off a hold, back on hold, what happens is they're like, Someone has stolen your cell phone number and moved it from AT&T to Verizon. I'm like, really? I never heard of that. They're like, yeah, that's what happened. So I'm like, well, what do I do? They're like, you got to call Verizon. So now I'm calling Verizon. I'm not even a Verizon customer. And uh, fortunately, I get through on Verizon, same cycle. I explain the whole thing, on hold, off hold, on hold, off hold. At the end of the day, they say, I don't know what the people at AT&T are talking about, but your phone is actually secured to AT&T. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So uh, I call AT&T back, and there's this wonderful young woman named Michaela. I, I don't know where Michaela lives, but I, I wrote her into my will, okay? <laughs> and... Uh, Michaela's like, oh, you know, Mr. Leonzo, I'll be happy to take care of this. She investigates it, uh, discovers that my phone has been flagged as stolen. And I'm like, that's what happened. Because the night before, I couldn't find my phone. And so I used Kathy's phone and a little find my iPhone feature. But I didn't have these things on my face. <laughs> and so I pushed the someone stole my phone button blacklisted my own phone. Fortunately, Michaela has got it solved. They tell me on Monday my phone should be actually reactivated, but it's been very nice over the last couple of days of I've had a, a, a voluntary or whatever fast of, of cell phone calls. Now, the question obviously becomes, why do I tell you this story? Well, first of all, I tell you this story because you guys actually laughed. Last night, it went over like a lead balloon. It was terrible. I had to keep telling them, that was a joke, that was a joke. Then I would get a little bit of laughter. But I tell you for another reason. There are two kinds of people in this world. The one kind of people or person, the people, they're, they're people who give accurate, truthful information that lead you in the right direction. And then there's another group of people who either intentionally or or, or unintentionally, or many times intentionally, give you inaccurate and false information and lead you in the wrong direction. Now, it's nothing more than a temporary inconvenience when we receive inaccurate information about reactivating our cell phone. That's an inconvenience. But it is an eternal life-threatening situation when we receive misleading information on how God actually wants us to live. And that's what we're going to talk about as we continue to work through this uh, series on the book of, or on the letters to the churches in Revelation. Uh, this morning we're going to look at the church in Pergamum, and uh, it's found in Revelation 2, 12 to 17. So if you've got a Bible, uh, fire that up, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. You can check it out on your phone app if it's not on the AT&T blocked list right now. Uh, you can also uh, grab a Bible from the tables around the room. Don't be shy about getting one of those Bibles. It'll also uh, be up on the screen. Revelation 2, verses 
12 to 17. If you're able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, please. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So uh, here's the, the big idea for this morning. We'll put it up here on the screen. Comprehensive... Godly faithfulness does not endure or put up with selective cultural compromise. So comprehensive godly faithfulness doesn't put up with or endure selective cultural compromise. Now, allow me to explain what that means. You see, you and I, we can be spot on when it comes to what we believe about God and the Bible. We can have every theological I dotted, every theological T crossed. We we can deeply love God. We can serve others. We can give generously. uh, We can regularly pray to God. We can faithfully read God's word. We can defend our faith and even endure in the midst of persecution. But if we manipulate God's word to be accepted by our culture, if we declare as right that which God declares as wrong, or we declare as wrong that which God declares as right, just so that we can fit in, or if we endure or listen to others who claim the name of Christ, yet mislead other people, No matter how faithful we think we're being, in the end, we're really not being faithful. And that's what we're going to see as we work our way through this passage. Now, as it's always the case, it's good to have a little bit of background to understand the context. Uh, What we have been telling you over the last couple weeks is here we have Jesus uh, speaking to the church in Pergamon uh, through the, the pen of the Apostle John. And this city is located in Asia Minor, uh, ancient Asia Minor, which is part of, or which is basically modern-day Turkey now. Now, uh, Pergamon, where we've got a a little uh, uh, etching of it, Pergamon was the the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. And uh, as such, it had a population of about 150,000 people. So it's a fairly good-sized 
city. Uh, also, because it was the capital, that's where the, the Roman governor lived. The Roman governor had been given a, a ton of power by the emperor of Rome, so he could actually literally execute justice with a sword. So if there were people who broke the Roman laws, he had the power to be able to execute these people. Now, this city, it's a, a major cultural, intellectual, and religious center. It has uh, this huge amphitheater, which are these, these steps kind of in the center that, that lead up over the, to the top of this hill. And at the top of the, the hill is a, a massive library for learning of 200,000 volumes. There's the Temple of Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom and warfare. Uh, there's another temple uh, to a god called Asclepius, which is the god of medicine whose uh, symbol is the serpent. And then there is finally a huge altar to uh, the primary god of the Greeks and, and Romans, Zeus. And there are scores of other temples and shrines all through the city. And beyond all of this, if there's one thing that Pergamum is known for, it's, it's called the cult of emperor worship. And so, so what the people in per, the, the ancient Rome, Romans believed that their emperor was a god and, was God and savior, and so they ultimately worshiped the emperor. And here in Pergamum was one of the, the key centers where all of this emperor worship occurred. And if you wanted to be a good citizen, and you wanted to be a loyal patriot and a, a faithful member of society, you worship the emperor. If you want to be persecuted, you choose not to worship the emperor. And in the midst of this center of pagan worship is this small Christian community, which, not surprisingly, is suffering greatly for their faith. And it's to this community that Jesus shares how God engages with his people who are living in an overtly secular society. A society that is outwardly hostile to Christians, a society that's outwardly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a society that, that accepts nothing less than conformity, one that uses shame and fear and rejection and even death to enforce conformity and to punish nonconformity. And in some ways, not in all, but in some ways, it's not much different than the society that we're living in now and that continues to morph. And as we examine Jesus' words to these suffering Christians, we find what I believe are, are, are four uh, ways, methods that God engages with us as we strive to, to live lives that actually please him while we try to navigate all of these challenges of this culture that we live in. And so these four concepts, these four ideas that I, I've came up with, I'll give them to you up front. It's easier for me that way. Then we'll just kind of break them down. Here's the very first one. Hopefully. Maybe. Perhaps. There we go. God recognizes faithfulness. That's what we're going to see first, that God recognizes faithfulness. Number two is this. God rebukes cultural compromise. When we compromise to be accepted by the culture, God has a rebuke for that. Number three is this. 
God requires repentance when we do number two. And finally, the last one is this. God rewards obedience. So folks, that's where we're headed this morning. So look again at verses two through or 12 through 13. This shows us that God recognizes faithfulness. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, these folks that are living in Pergamon who are Christians are in a bad way. And they're in a bad way because the Bible tells us that they are living where Satan's throne is. Now, what that's telling us is this. They are, are not simply passing through Pergamon. They haven't stopped for a visit. They didn't uh, spend, you know, $1,000 with three A's to, to get the Pergamon temple tour. These people live there. It's where their house is. It's where they go to work and go to school. It's where they raise their kids. It's where they, they go and they shop for their groceries. And it's right in the midst of what Jesus is calling Satan's throne. So now you've got to ask yourself the question, what in the world is Satan's throne? Well, what Satan's throne is in here is, is Jesus is not talking about hell and the underworld. That's not the image that's happening here. He's talking about hell on earth. Because these people are living in hell on earth. The serpent, is, that's the symbol of this uh, Asclepius uh, god, is throughout the city. So there's serpent images all over the city. The serpent is also what? The biblical image of Satan. And then the throne is most probably this massive altar to Zeus that's at the very top of the hill that's overlooking the city. So this is the, you get the image that you're in where Satan's throne is. And if living in the midst of Satan's throne is not bad enough, these people, some of them, are actually dying in the midst of Satan's throne. One of them had a name by the name of Antipas. Now, we know nothing about him other than what we read here, that he was faithful to God, and it cost him his life. And while he might have been the, the first Christian to die in Pergamon, he wasn't about to be the last. Because there's going to be a long list of Christians who die in that city because they're not willing to conform to their culture. Yet although Pergamon Christians are in a bad way, they had an important thing going for them. God hadn't forgotten them. God, God knew where they lived. He knew the, the suffering that they were experiencing. And more than anything else, he knew that they had held fast to his name and that they had held fast to their faith. So in the midst of this great suffering, the, these Christians, they, they are clinging to Jesus. When, when persecution comes, they don't run from the gospel. They, they, they run to the gospel. And while the Roman governor there wielded the sword that could kill them, they knew that Jesus Christ wielded the eternal double-edged sword that he talks about in the very beginning 
that is over all things. And in the midst of this, Jesus sees their faithfulness. It didn't go unnoticed. It's not going to go unavenged, the things that are happening to them, and they certainly are going to be rewarded. Because Jesus promises that to those who suffer on behalf of his name. In Matthew chapter 24, just days before Jesus' death and resurrection, he reminds his followers of this. He says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and many will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will sadly grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, they will be saved. You see, eternal salvation awaits those who endure to the end. Now, this most probably resonates with many people that are in this room right now and are who are in the living rooms watching this right now. Because for many of us, it's a challenge to remain faithful to God and God's word. And the reason that it's a challenge is because the bottom line is that it is hard to be a Christian. And for some of us, it's hard to be a Christian in, in our marriage or in our family or in our neighborhood, or, or in our workplace, or, or in our school, or, or maybe in our friend group. And because we know the truth, and when we share the truth, others cast that aside what? As myth. The standards that we hold, others see that what? As judgment. But we press on in the face of, of the insults, in the face of the backbiting and, and the gossip and, and the, uh, the chit-chat behind our backs and, and in the, the midst of, of the icy stares and even the threats. And it's hard, but we love Jesus and we are not about to abandon our faith in the midst of hardship. And if that describes you, what, I want you to remember along with me remembering that Jesus, he knows where we live. And he knows who our enemies are. And he hears their, their ridicule. And he knows their plans. And, and he, he watches their actions. But more importantly, he sees your faith. And he knows your trust and your steadfastness. It does not go unnoticed. And it will one day be rewarded. But here is the rub. Here's the problem, the issue, the challenge. It's possible to hold fast to Jesus' name and not deny the faith, yet engage in cultural compromise. Look at verses 14 and 15. 
but I have a few things against you. Never want to hear those. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You see, while God recognizes faithfulness, he rejects cultural compromise. You see, for as faithful as as the Christians were in Pergamon, they had a serious problem. Some in their midst had embraced teachings and approved of behaviors that are contrary to God's will. And the teaching that that Jesus refers to here uh, finds its source in in the teaching of a, a Gentile prophet from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers named Balaam who led the ancient Jewish people into idolatry and adultery. And, and it appears what has happened here is, is Balaam's ancient heresy ha, has been embraced by a group of people that are called the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans ha, have infiltrated this, this Christian church in Pergamon. And this teaching was making its way throughout the church. And given that the city is, is the center of, of pagan worship, there, there's tons of meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And there's all kinds of, of sexual immorality that, that's occurring because that, that was part of, of ancient Roman worship was temple prostitution. And so it was, it was very easy for these Christians who were being pushed down by society to begin to engage in things in society that, that society finds acceptable, but that God doesn't. And so what happens here is these people, they relent to the culture's uh, push to be conformed. And while God commends them for their faith, He condemns them for succumbing to those who preach cultural compromise. And we get that also. Why? Because probably to a man and a woman in this room, we are all tempted at some point in time to embrace cultural compromise. You see, the draw of our culture is extraordinarily strong. And the desire to fit in is even greater. So what do we do? We start off by making little compromises. And those little compromises turn into big compromises. And before that we know it, our Christian life is completely indistinguishable from the balance of society. We love Jesus, we love his word, but we have so enveloped ourselves in this culture that we look no different than people who don't love Jesus and don't love his word. So, what are some of those cultural compromises that we make? Sometimes without thinking, sometimes with thinking, that are ultimately opposed to God's word. I'm going to give you a few of them. But before I do so, we need to have 
a little talk. I'm about to move from preaching to what some of you are going to consider as meddling. Some of you are going to become extremely uncomfortable in the next 10 minutes. There are others that are no, undoubtedly are going to be offended. And I am quite certain that there is going to be a group of people in here, or a segment, or not even a segment, there, there are going to be people in here who become very, very angry with me this morning. And you need to know a couple things. I am absolutely okay with that. I have zero problem that that's what's going to happen. But this is what I'm not okay with. I am not okay with the way that our culture handles conflict. I am absolutely not okay with getting up and leaving like a child. I am not okay with abandoning living water because something or someone offends. All of those folks who became members today, they, they know about what our guarantee is, that, that if you like more than, than 80% of what we're doing here at Living Water, we're doing something wrong, and that by coming here, there's a 100% guarantee that you will be offended and that you will offend. That's what comes with Living Water Community. You don't have this diversity and everybody be completely harmonious or harmonious or whatever the word is. And the other thing I'm not okay with is not being willing to talk about stuff. Our society is completely messed up. It does not know how to do conflict. It does not know how to do reconciliation. It does, has no clue what in the world tolerance actually is. You see, we don't need to, to agree on everything to be in relationship with one another. And just because I have a different perspective on something, it doesn't mean that, that you and I have to be enemies. It's okay not to be in 100% alignment on every theological uh, thought, every type of Christian practice. It's okay. Now, there are, there are hills we need to die on. I, I die on the authority of God's word. I, I die on the deity of Jesus Christ, on the virgin birth. I die on, on grace or salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The, those are hills I die on. I can still be kind to you if you don't agree with me on those, but those are hills that I, I die on. But even if we don't agree on those things, I still love you. I still respect you. I still want to engage with you. And the reason that, that, that I at least am able to do that is because the Christian worldview that, that guides my life is wildly strong and incredibly resilient. And I am extraordinarily confident in it. And as such... I can handle disagreements, and I can handle having tough conversations, and I can be engaged with people even when it's hard and contentious, and I can do that 
Because my value, my worth, isn't determined about what anybody says about me or thinks about me. It is completely determined about who died on that cross thinks of me. That's why I can do that. But my question is this. Can you say the same? Is the worldview that guides you wildly strong and incredibly resilient? Where do you find your value and worth? Is it in the approval of others? Is it in comfort? Or is it in the the Son of God who died on the cross so that you might live? And can you lovingly engage with others even when they don't agree with you? Because the reality is there are a lot of people who are unable to do that. So you don't have to agree with me on what I'm about to share. But I would humbly ask this. Before you get mad, before you send that angry email, before you run away from this place like many have in the past and never ever come back, I challenge you that later on today, that you get down on your knees and you pray to the God of the universe to speak into your heart. And you open his word. And if the things that I've shared here are, are, are off, ask God to show them to you. Because I'm just a, a sinful, fallen, saved by grace human like all of the rest of you. So here we go. Buckle your seatbelts. Because here's Mike's top five list of cultural compromises. Number one. Halloween. Yeah, I know it's about costumes and candy. I know it's uh, about little Susie dressing up like Disney's Mirabelle. Little Johnny sporting that $50, uh, you know, from Spirit World or whatever's in a Colonial Park Mall, the Yo- Baby Yoda costume. So, so what's the big deal about that? Well, we could start off with Halloween's origin. It's a pagan harvest festival where crops were offered as sacrifices to honor their gods, and costumes were worn to, to ward off evil spirits, but we don't even need to go there. You just got to look around and figure out what Halloween is actually all about. It's about witches and wizards and warlocks. It's about devils and demons and darkness. It's about ghouls and ghosts, zombies and vampires, all of which are associated with with death, the occult, and Satanism. And there's It's about violence and mutilation 
and murder and blood and guts and gore. And it's not surprising that a, a, a Netflix special about Jeffrey Dahmer eating people is the number one thing on Netflix right now. And it's about fear. And you don't believe me. Just drive, drive through the neighborhood right here. Eight o'clock at night. Drive down Dairy Street. You'll see. And there's much that the Bible has to say about avoiding evil and pagan practices. But I, I'm going to sum it up in one verse. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Yet many Christians don't think twice about culturally compromising and participating in Halloween. Number two, gender pronouns. Pastor Ben did an entire message on transgenderism probably about a year and a half, two years ago. If you, you want to listen to that message, I would encourage you to do so. He did a, a masterful job on that. I'm not going to attempt to re-preach that. And, and I am well aware that there are families in Living Water Community Church who I deeply love who are struggling with family members who are struggling with gender identity. And so I'm extremely sympathetic to the challenges that come with bringing gospel-centered love to those situations because it's a challenge. But the bottom line is this. When, when, when you cut through all of the emotion, when you cut through all of the politics, the bottom line is this. The Bible, which is our authority, is gender binary. It knows no other gender categories other than male and female. Gender was not created by humanity like people will tell you. It's not, not some human construct. Gender was created by the God of the universe in Genesis chapter 1. And every person, even those who are struggling with gender identity, are created in the image of God. And that's the solution for people who are confused about their identity, is they need to recognize that they are created wonderfully as they were by the God of the universe. Similarly this, the Bible do, does not divorce biological sex from gender identity like our culture does. In the Bible, biological males are always males. Biological females are always females. So the, the, the source of our, our culture's confusion about gender does not flow from the Bible. It flows from what occurred in Genesis chapter 3 and the fallenness of humanity. It goes back to original sin. So when it comes to our culture's obsession with using a person's preferred gender pronouns, 
the only thing that, that we as Christians need to know is that the God of the universe tells us that we are not to lie to someone even if they believe a lie. Proverbs 12 says this, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. It doesn't get much clearer than that. Yet as Christians, we are quick to conform to culture, even when it's something as small as putting those little gender pronouns at the end of our email signature, or putting our pronouns on our cubicle identifier. Number three, I'm opposed to abortion, but. That's cultural compromise number three. From God's perspective, there is no but when it comes to abortion. Either what's growing inside of the womb is a human or it's not. And if it's a human life, no one has the right to terminate that life. And if it's not a human life, you can do anything in the world that you want with it. And the Bible is clear that from the moment of conception, it's human life. And some of the most vivid, beautiful, poetic words of all of Scripture, you read this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when it was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see, when we say that we are personally opposed to abortion, what we are really saying is that we believe that what is inside the woman's womb is a human life. Yet the moment that we add the word but, we're being conformed to our culture, which says, you know what, it's a human life when it is wanted, and it's not a human life when it's not wanted. Now, I understand intimately that there are rare times for example, in the case of an atopic pregnancy, where doctors save a mother's life, and in doing so, the baby's life is lost. I get that. I've grieved that. Knowing that the intended procedure was done, why? To save mom and not take the life of the baby. And when you get down to it, all human life is precious. Both that of the child and that of the mother. And as such, we need to, to work hard to ensure 
that, that, that both moms and babies are protected and cared for throughout the entire pregnancy and into the, the balance of their lives. You, you can't just have it part way. You've got to go the distance. You've got to walk beside the ones and help them. And at the same time, we've got to pour out God's love and grace that those who in the past found themselves in crazy, difficult situations and made decisions that they wish they never would have had to have made. Because the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus covers all of that. But what we must not do is to conform to our culture's obsession with the taking of human life. And why do I say it's an obsession? When you have a governor of a state, which I don't need to mention, it's not Pennsylvania, who puts up billboards in other states encouraging women to come to their state to get abortions, that is someone who is obsessed with the taking of human life. Cultural compromise number four. You're doing really good. No one's got up and left yet. Selective justice. The themes of justice and oppression, they course through the pages of Scripture. They are completely inescapable. If you read the Bible, you will know that the Bible cares greatly about justice and the cause of the oppressed. Here's a couple examples. Isaiah 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Micah 6, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, Christians are to be people who bring justice to the oppressed. But that's not what we do many times. Many times we allow our culture to determine that situation which requires justice and that which other situation we say doesn't require justice. And it comes along and it determines what is really oppression and what is really not oppression. What oppression should be relieved here? What oppression shouldn't be relieved there? Let me give you an example. There are Christians in this room right now that I know that turned an absolute blind eye to the riots that occurred after the horrific killing of George Floyd. Yet they were absolutely incensed on January 6th. At the same time, there are Christians sitting in this room right now that I know that were outraged at the riots that occurred after the horrific killing of George Floyd and gave those who rioted on January 6th a complete pass. And in both of those cases, people exercised not biblical justice, 
they exercised selective justice because they were being pulled by, to be conformed to whatever tribe that is important to them and not the truth of God's word, which says this in Proverbs 17. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Last one. My faith is private. Many of us have embraced the cultural compromise that tells us that faith is a private matter that we need to keep it to ourselves. So we go around happily concealing our Christianity while at the same time declaring the God who has commanded us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Or the one who says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know, uh, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. You see, Christians are not to be silent because we possess the truth that saves lives of people. We are the only hope. The gospel is the only hope for a world that is going straight to hell without Christ. And yet we are quiet and we are timid and we are afraid. Why? Because we want to be accepted by a culture that rejects our God. Those are just a few compromises. I, 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 there's a litany of them. Yeah, none of, you may not compromise on any one of those. But there may be all kinds of sexual compromises that you're making. All kinds of, of ethical business compromises that you're making. These are just Mike's top five. So what's God's response to that? What does God think when we do that? What does God think when I do that? Verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. When we engage in corporate... Uh, <laughs> Why did I create a tongue twister for that, right? Cultural compromise... God calls us to repent. We're to, to turn away from that sin and turn back to God. We're not to wait. We're not to say, oh, well, well, Pastor Mike, he put these things out there. I'm convicted about some of those. I'm going to deal with them in 2023 when I can make new resolutions. He says, repent now. Turn now from your evil ways. And turn what? Back to me. Not, not to condemnation, but to grace. That covers all of that. And here it goes. And, and, and repentance, it, it takes two forms. Form one. If we ourselves are actively engaged in cultural compromise, it's what I say, we've we got to stop right away. 
We need to change our wrong thinking, our wrong beliefs, our wrong actions that have been aligned to our culture, and we need to realign our thinking, realign our beliefs, and realign our actions to that which is God. Form two, perhaps we aren't actively engaged in cultural compromise, but we know that there are those in our church family who are encouraging those behaviors. This is the specific act that Jesus is talking about here. He tells the Pergamon Christians that they are to oppose the Nicolaitans, that, that they're to, to lovingly confront those in their midst that are steering people astray, that are causing people to make these cultural compromises. They are to stop them, and to fail to do so would be considered sin. And you and I, we're called to do the same thing. Where there is false teaching in our midst, it needs to be confronted. We're to do it, though, in a matter that honors God. We're to do it in, in a manner that is, is gracious and, and, and truth-loving and, and, and loving of the person. Not, not from some pinnacle of, of, of theological arrogance but out of humility, wanting to be treated the same way if we were the one that was leading someone astray. And what Jesus says is if they don't do it, he will. And if we don't do it, he will. Notice what he says in, in 16. He says, if not, if you don't deal with the false teachers, then I will come to you. That word come is actually in the present tense in Greek. That means Jesus isn't waiting. He's going to come in the midst. He's going to rile things up. He's going to bring conviction, but he's also going to bring grace. But if those Christians don't do anything about it, he will. Ella, come on, you ought to come up here and preach with me, sister. You know exactly what I'm about to say. And when he arrives, what's he going to do? He's going to make judgments, and he's going to judge with that two-edged sword that is in his mouth. And it tells us what? He's going to wage war on the ones who are the false teachers. He's going to deal with the church in the present, and he is going to deal with those false teachers in the future, and it will not be pretty. In the words of Dr. Grant Osborne, the coming will be to the whole church, but the wrath will be especially addressed to the heretics and their followers. You see, Jesus is giving us a choice. You deal with those who are leading people into cultural compromise now, or you delay and you wait for Jesus to do it. And Jesus is going to do it with much more drastic results. Now, last thing, and here's the beauty of all of this. When we choose wisely, something incredibly wonderful happens. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, in other words, he who listens, he who does, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who, who is willing to press against culture, I will give some of the hidden manna 
and I will give him a white stone with a, a name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there are countless articles that are written to try to explain what the hidden manna is and what the white stone is all about. And we, we could spend hours talking about this stuff. And, and a lot of it is merely uh, speculation. But what I believe it is simply saying is this, that Jesus, he gives grace and kindness and love, and he rewards obedience. That is not in vain. That you and I might go up against culture, we might suffer greatly, but Jesus sees it. And he may not reward us in the present, but he will definitely reward us in the end. Jesus rewards those who remain faithful in the midst of persecution, who don't deny him in the midst of adversity, who refuse to conform to cultural compromise, and who seek to protect the church from false leaders who lead others astray. And I much rather would deal with those who lead others astray and have to deal with the God of the universe for my failure. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these folks. I pray for those that are here, those that are at home. And Lord, these are challenging words, and these are challenging times that we live in. And Lord, I am certain that there are, are many in this room like me who have conformed at times and maybe at the present time to cultural compromise. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your conviction would lay heavy on our hearts. Lord, that we would repent of our sin, turn from what you would believe and what is, Heavenly Father, evil ways, and turn to you, the amazing, incredible God of the universe who knew that, that, that we could not work ourselves to him, that we could not be obedient enough to satisfy his demands for righteousness, and who out of love and kindness and mercy sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us so that we might live, so that we might be accepted by you, Father, not on our own righteousness, which is incapable for us to earn, but on the righteousness of your perfect son. Thank you for Jesus. Pour your grace and mercy down upon these folks now. Thank you for this offering that we are about to receive. I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that you would use it for the advancement of your kingdom, that, Lord God, that the resources would be uh, utilized in, in wise ways, Heavenly Father, that it would be about building your kingdom and no kingdom of anyone else. Thank you for this time, Lord, and it's through your Son's name we pray. Amen.